0: Hi friends, welcome back to the Modern Wisdom Podcast. My guest today is a fellow podcaster. Nat Eliason is the host of Made You Think and also the man behind growthmachine.com. I had a few things that I wanted to speak to Nat about today. His ability to retain the information that he reads in books through a progressive summarization method is pretty impressive and he takes us through that today. He also explains how he's managed to essentially monetizes passion by selling access to his own Evernote. We talk about growthmachine.com and how organic versus paid strategies in the online world are changing and developing over time. And finally, he gives us his five favorite books that you probably haven't read. So stay until the end and find out exactly what Nat thinks you should sink your teeth into as your next read, which you might not have seen on the New York Times bestsellers list. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing Head to drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom for that 90-day money-back guarantee, a year's free supply, vitamin D, five free travel packs, and more. That's drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom. Please welcome the wise and wonderful Nat Eliason. joined by the host of the Made You Think podcast and the man behind growthmachine.com, Nat Eliason. Nat, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me on. Excited to be here.
0: So I am a big fan of your podcast. Recently had Robert Green on talking about laws of human nature and your guys' summary of that uh, was a, a big a big help in prepping. It's a big old book and what you guys do on the podcast really really helps to condense stuff down. Would you be able to explain sort of what the Made You Think podcast is and and what the uh, concept behind it is?
1: Yeah, uh, Made You Think started uh, actually out of another podcast. So I had <clears throat> had a podcast before called Nat Chat, where I Such was... Such a good name. <laughs> yeah, great name, right? Yeah, I love it. <laughs> I, uh, I was interviewing people who had come out of college and done something sort of like atypical. Uh, And by atypical, I meant, you know, not gone to do what I saw a lot of other people from top tier schools doing, like working in finance or consulting or going to work at one of the fan companies, things like that. So talking Mm -hmm. to a lot of young people who either went entrepreneurial routes or were doing like contract work or ended up being an early member in an agency, things like that, that you don't hear about as much when you are going to some of these schools and trying to get more of those stories out there for people who felt like, oh, those typical career paths just aren't as exciting to me. So uh, did them, did was doing that chat for a while and interviewed one of my friends, Neil, who ended up doing like a whole bunch of different things right out of college and eventually became sort of like a internal innovation consultant for Estee Lauder, uh, and then went on to start his own, uh, like beer company, helping people create like custom brews, taking advantage of the, uh, unused capacity of breweries around the country. Um, and we had a really good, like three hour long episode, just talking about everything and how he ended up doing what he was doing. And people really, really liked how, in-depth we went and how much stuff we talked about and then we said or we thought it might be fun to do a second episode on a book that we both really liked uh anti-fragile by Nassim Taleb and so we just got back on and talked about anti-fragile for two hours or so (laughs) and it ended up being I think the most popular episode of Nat Chat ever uh and we kind of saw that and we're like, well, this is clearly a sign that there's something interesting here. And I was getting a little tired of doing the interview style uh, of episodes. So we said, well, why don't we just try doing a podcast based on reading, you know, tougher books and then talking about the key takeaways from them. And so we did that and started putting out episodes about books that we were both reading and enjoying and, uh yeah and that was sort of the inception for for made you think uh
0: yeah I, I have to say that you're right and one of the things that you touched on in the robert green uh podcast you guys said that flipping over to the interview style or maybe it was one of your other recent ones flipping over to the interview style of podcast was something that you think there's enough people doing that in that space already and i have to agree um, I have a bunch of co-hosts that I do this show with the listeners will be familiar with Johnny and Yusuf and the episodes that I do with those guys by far outstrip the engagement that the ones that I do, even if I get New York times bestselling author on. And I think it's something to do with the fact that, um, when you just have normal candor between a group of friends, th- a big proportion of people who are into podcasting just like that kind of voyeuristic fly on the wall type stuff but you're right you you guys have tackled some pretty difficult books didn't you tackle um there's an episode i've got queued up isn't it like some ridiculously difficult sci-fi book
1: uh infinite jest infinite yeah jest. it's yeah it's uh it's i guess it's a sci-fi book technically but yeah it's a super super weird like thousand page book with 200 pages of end notes, um, like most of it makes very little sense without <laughs> reading it very carefully. It's it's not quite like Ulysses level of confusing, but it's up there. So that was, that was a journey getting through that book. Uh, the episode came together surprisingly well. I wasn't sure exactly what we were going to talk about. I don't think either of us were because like nothing really there's no like huge plot driving the book it's it's really a character novel um but it was fun to work through it and honestly I think the satisfaction isn't having finished it not necessarily in all of the time spent reading it so it's a good one
0: <clears throat> yeah I guess that's probably the same as doing a marathon like there's big bits of a marathon that you're probably not going to enjoy but once you get across the finish line it feels pretty good
1: yeah, exactly. Everyone wants to have run a marathon, not to run a
0: marathon. Yeah, perfectly correct. So one of the first things that I wanted to ask you about was your approach to progressive summarization. That's what <laughs> Tiago Forte would refer to it as, or I guess in more common parlance, it would be how do you remember the things that you read? Um, I know that you have a, a an Evernote system and you also have like a a membership uh, back end to your Evernote, which I think is really super interesting. So yeah, if you could talk to us about your process for remembering the things you read, and then also explain to the listeners about your Evernote, uh, your little Evernote hustle you've got going on.
1: Yeah. And to be clear, you know, I didn't come up with this system at all. This is Tiago's invention. And if anyone isn't familiar with Tiago's work, you should check it out. It's a Uh, Forte Labs, like F-O-R-T-E, labs.co, C-O. Uh, And his blog is praxis.fortelabs.co. And he's really, I think, one of the only writers in the productivity space who's worth reading. Uh, Pretty much all productivity writing is just like the same trash being rehashed a dozen different ways. His is actually novel and interesting and ultimately much more useful than most everything else out there so
0: that's a big accolade uh, for, for tiago
1: yeah no i and i, I stand by that I, I really him and chris sparks are the only two people who i read in the productivity space anymore um everybody else is not really contributing anything new or useful to the discussion but they're doing good work so and chris is at uh, the dot
0: Interesting. So, yeah, we had. A, I actually had Tiago on about three weeks ago. We had him on talking. About, oh, wonderful! Talking about the digital productivity pyramid. Um, but the final question, I asked him the question about progressive summarization, and that was as his um, buzzer went that he had to go on to something else. So I thought, yeah. let's let's see what happens if we get into the trenches with someone who does <laughs> progressive summarization at a pretty pretty high velocity, and and that's that's you.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I, I use it as a way to consolidate and make my book notes in particular more useful. So whenever I'm reading uh, a book, I'll pretty much always read it on my Kindle and I'll be highlighting stuff as I'm going. So I'm just using the Kindle highlight feature. Anything that looks kind of interesting, uh, I'll, I'll highlight so that I can pull it out later and i'll sometimes highlight other things mostly just as goal or signposts for context when i'm looking back at my notes later i read most nonfiction now with the notes that i'm going to take from them in mind uh so it's very like strategic consumption to do it in a way where i know i'm going to get good notes out of the book that i can use later so i'm going through and i'm highlighting the things that are interesting and stand out and then when uh, i'm done I use a tool called Readwise, uh, readwise readwise.com that can take your Kindle uh, highlights and then seamlessly export them to Evernote with all of the formatting and stuff coming out really cleanly. So it's just, you know, highlight, 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 highlight in new lines with no like weirdness that you get the other apps. So uh, I'll take it all into Evernote and then I've just got this kind of like disorganized list of my highlights from the book and then I'll go back through and first I'll like add whatever other sign- posting I need. So whether that's section titles or chapters or uh, however else I'm going to structure the notes so that I can skim through them easier later. And then the progressive summarization comes in, which is going through and adding uh, anywhere from three to four layers, I guess two to four layers of annotation to the note in order to make the highlights from the book even more useful. So, uh, in its base form, it's just your highlights. It's just the text that you pulled out of the book. Uh, layer two is going through and bolding the parts of those highlights that is uh, most important. So you might have you know, part of each highlight that's most important. You might have some highlights that are less important. This is usually the phase where I'll go through and delete some of them too. Yeah. Like maybe I highlighted an idea early on in the book and then later on that idea got explained better and so I'll keep the highlight from later and delete the one from earlier. So I do a bit of cleanup there. Uh, And then once you've gone through and bolded all the important parts, then you go through again and you highlight the most important parts of the bolded parts. So you're only reading the text that you've bolded, you're ignoring all of the unbolded text and you're going through the bolded text and you're saying, okay, of this, what is the most important? And you're highlighting that, uh, so that now when you skim through your note, you've got these highlighted call outs of the most important parts of the book that you can easily jump to, uh, to pull out those ideas. And then there's another layer that I don't always do. I think Tiago does a better job of it. Uh, but if you keep coming back to a certain book or a certain note, you can create like a little executive summary at the top of the note. And so that's just like maybe three to five bullet points of the most important ideas from the book or from the article, whatever you took the notes from, so that you can really quickly redigest what uh, you took away from that piece when you're coming back to it. Um, now I do this differently from tiago where tiago his method or the way he does it is like as a book or an article gets resurfaced so as he needs something for an article he's writing or it comes up in a conversation then he might bring up the note and then each time he brings it up he does another layer so he doesn't immediately go through and bold things he waits and then when it comes up again he'll go through and bold it or at least this is how i remember how he said he did it got you Uh, what I do is I do it, I do it all up front after I've read the book because as you alluded to, I have a product on my site where I sell these notes. So I've been doing it, uh, and I was doing it in a rougher form before I discovered Tiago's work where I was just pulling out my highlights and organizing them and publishing them as pages on my blog, similar to what Derek Sivers does. And then Uh, as I, you know, got into Tiago's work and learned about progressive summarization, I started doing that to all my book notes. So now I've got, I think like 240 books in there (laughs) and they're all annotated and highlighted and everything. So it makes it really quick for me to go back through and pull out, uh, the, the most important takeaways. Yeah. 241 books. So, uh, and then I just sell that on my blog and you pay $50 and you get lifetime access to all current and future notes. Uh, that go in there which is pretty useful if you're trying to decide you know what book to read or if you know you read a book but you didn't take any notes and you want to go back and pull out some important stuff i've got a lot of like the popular ones in there uh including laws of human nature of course and anti-fragile and all the ones on on made you think so yeah that's sort of how that all started and then the other fun thing with it is since I publish a less annotated version of these notes on my site, my site actually ranks in Google for the titles of a lot of these books. Or if you search a lot of these books plus summary or plus highlights, you'll usually find my blog on the first page. So if you Google like 48 laws of power summary, I think I'm like in the top three that come up for that. And that, you know, brings a lot of traffic to the site and then people discover my other articles or they discover the paid version of the notes. So it's a nice little like bit of, Side passive income
0: for sure. Yeah, it's um, it's cool that you've taken something. There's this sort of evolution of ideas or evolution of process that we've got here. Where previously you were taking notes, then you refined your process of taking notes through Tiago's course. Then that became that formed the foundation for you to then build the podcast off. Because I'm going to guess when you're recording, made you think all that you really do is go back through your notes for the particular book that you're talking about and move through there and you've got that as your reference and then you've created a a income stream off that also you're driving traffic off that it's like the ultimate evergreen content I suppose
1: yeah yeah in many ways and then obviously when I'm uh, doing my like other articles that might reference stuff in one of these books I've got all of my highlights right there uh, so that I can just go back and pull out whatever sections I want to quote for my articles. So it's really useful for creating other content as well.
0: I got you. So how do you choose what you want to read? You've mentioned you've got, you know, 240 books which are summarized. I'm going to guess you'll have read more than that, which haven't been summarized. And you seem to read at a pretty quick quick pace. How do you choose what it is that you're going to dedicate your time to?
1: Uh, It's sort of just whatever I'm interested in. Or if it's made you think related, it's whatever Neil and I want to do an episode on. There's not that much science behind it, honestly. Got you. Because uh, I know the the biggest impediment to reading a lot will just be reading stuff that I don't want to read. Mm. Because if I get you know into a book that I don't that I'm not that interested in, then I'll just get stuck and like do other things instead. So uh, I just kind of go with whatever is interesting to me at the time and and read that.
0: Yeah, it's bizarre that um, kind of. Inertia that occurs when you are reading a book that you don't want to read. I know that Naval and Joe Rogan on the podcast that they did recently spoke about the fact that neither of them actually finish books. I think Naval's like notorious for just picking up a book, reading a page, finding something he likes, and then going down a rabbit hole on like Wikipedia and and searching blogs for the rest of the night. Um, But for me personally i find it's a bit of a an open loop when i've got a book that so uh, thinking fast and slow is a perfect example and it's like it's so Mm. long as well it's a it's a monster to get through um i just i've really struggled to get through that book and i keep on trying i keep on picking it up keep on picking it up and every time i do my overall reading for the week goes down because i just there's something like i don't know whether it's because i don't want to be defeated um, and whether I just want to kind of grit my teeth and continue to read through it. But you, you're you very correct. If there's listeners at home who are trying to develop a reading habit, uh, I have been and continue to at the moment over the, the coming years. Uh, hopefully that will get more and more easy for me, as it, the trajectory is suggesting. But yeah, the getting bogged down in a book is a surefire way to make reading an awful lot harder.
1: Yeah, and I think that people sweat too much early on about, uh, you know, reading good books or challenging books, but it's like get in the habit of just like reading anything first and then you can level up the difficulty as you go, right? You don't want to be reading businessy books, right? Like James Altucher trash for too long. But if you need to start there, like there's nothing wrong with that.
0: Yeah, and especially before before bed, sometimes for me, if I do end up reading something that's too kind of go getter and upward mobility uh focused, I end up going to bed with my mind absolutely buzzing. So I think there's definitely a place in there for people to read, I don't know, like autobiographies or fiction or you know, more narrative based stuff I guess to, to kind of just give give your brain a little bit of a rest. Definitely. Yeah. Um, so, tell us about Growth Machine. I'm super interested to hear about that. Yeah. So, Growth Machine is
1: a SEO focused content marketing agency. So, we work with uh, e commerce and tech companies to take over a decent portion of their blog and their content strategy to get them, you know, ranked top of Google for everything related to their product and their customers' interests. So. Well, you know, I think the best example of this is our work on our own site, Cup and Leaf, which is a e-commerce tea store. And then we've created the Cup and Leaf blog talking about tea and managed to get in the top spots on Google for like best green tea, best oolong tea, health benefits of jasmine tea, like all of those terms. And then that search traffic translates directly into sales that you're getting organically instead of having to buy ads on the terms.
0: Yeah, so the organic versus paid debate is one that we continue to have on this podcast an awful lot. The two co-hosts are big uh, uh, proponents of paid f- fans of samovans and of uh, the guys behind ClickFunnels and uh, the, that kind of, uh, I guess, how would you call it, the more transactional uh, approach to, to driving traffic. But I, I certainly agree. And I think that organic, if you can get it right, is such a powerful tool.
1: Yeah. And it doesn't have to be an either or. Yeah. You know, they, they usually support each other. And organic is slower and more difficult and takes longer to kick in. But if you can get it right, you know, you can potentially be getting ongoing customers for almost free. Right. Like, yeah, it it can work very, very well if you know how to target the right things. But it's much harder, especially in the early days, to build a business on because, again, it is so slow, whereas you can just turn on ads tomorrow. And <laughs> if you know what you're doing, start making start making sales within a week.
0: Yeah. Start driving traffic. It is. It's it's one of these things. I, I wonder what your thoughts are on this coming out from someone who does push uh, to the optimization of SEO my concern with the proliferation of paid media at the moment or paid advertising is that essentially anybody can do it. If it's just a formula and Rory Sutherland was on the podcast talking about this as well. And he said that he thinks Silicon Valley sees everything as an optimization problem and that mm-hmm. they presume that if you get the correct combination of numbers on a spreadsheet, the output will be a black figure at the bottom of your balance. Um, and, I don't know, for me, there has to be diminishing margins of return as more and more people find... Like, more and more people read Expert Secrets by Russell Brunson or whatever whatever their Bible of choice for online advertising is. That particular strategy will get rinsed and rinsed down to the point at which so many people are doing it that the market won't respond anymore. What, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, uh, maybe. I mean, ads... I think, have always been here and always will be here. And they will just change how they're being presented to us. Like most of the money now is going into Instagram ads instead of Facebook ads. Um, Obviously, it's still Facebook, but people are getting better ROI on Instagram now because Facebook ads are kind of played out. And maybe that will change over time. Like maybe more will move into Pinterest or somewhere else. But I don't think it's ever going to get so saturated that it no longer works. You just have to keep getting better at it and there will probably always be interesting new areas to check out but i think it's just like as long as people are selling things online there's going to be ads and if you're good you're going to make a lot of money and if you're bad you're going to lose lose a lot lot of money money.
0: yeah i I totally totally agree um so going back to the books and the uh content that you've been consuming over the last few years some of the listeners may be thinking that I'm pretty interested in getting stuck in. Have you got a a top five or so that you could run us through? It doesn't need to be of all time. It could just be what you've thought of recently or anything like that. But I think some recommendations might be cool, and then we could have a little discuss about each of the books perhaps.
1: Yeah, top books. Um,
0: or Most read. What do you keep going back to?
1: Oh, I I reread very rarely because I just take good enough notes the first time that I don't need to go reread it exactly um, of course you do for the most part <laughs> so i am gonna i'm not gonna pick the best five per se i'm gonna try to pick a few that maybe haven't been talked about on here as much because i can make some guesses about what has probably come up before awesome um so peak by andrews erickson and robert pool is probably the best book on learning and skill acquisition uh way, way more useful than any of the like hacky learning stuff like Tim Ferriss style books that I think are more popular. I think Peak is actually a legitimately useful uh, one for learning for somebody with a more long-term mindset.
0: Um, Is that a prescriptive book or I haven't, I haven't read it. uh,
1: It's not prescriptive. I mean, the thing is they're not trying to sell you that you're going to be able to like learn a language in 24 hours. Mm -hmm. So they're much tempered in how they frame things, but it's very prescriptive. If you know how to read and implement it.
0: Got you. I've got um, Scott H young. Uh, I've got him on this week talking about ultra learning, which is his new book. And he references peak in that he references, make it stick by Peter C Brown, who's been on this podcast as well. And uh, atomic habits as well, I suppose, but yeah, the kind of desire for people to learn how to learn um, definitely identifies that most people don't know, which is bizarre, right? Considering almost everyone in the Western worlds in full time education for at least like eleven years or something.
1: Yeah, yeah, but it's still a uh, still a challenge, and I, I think the other thing too that people need to be careful about is that all of this like learning how to learn, uh, skill acquisition stuff, a lot of it is sort of a get rich quick scheme in disguise. How so? Like the old, well, because people think like, oh, I could just like, you know, or one they think that the problem isn't that learning is hard and takes a while; it's that I'm like doing it incorrectly, Mm -hmm. right? And so instead of just continuing to make progress in the way that they probably should, they look for hacks and they look for shortcuts and like they get obsessed over the whole 80 20 nonsense and like think they need to over optimize their process instead of just like doing the work and getting good at the skill like skill acquisition is really simple like it's not complicated but people over it like one to sell stuff in two because it's more fun to like spend time trying to hack your learning than it is to do the boring <laughs> learning stuff right yeah like you feel super productive rereading um you know like an article on how to learn and you feel like you're making progress but it's like no you should probably just you know if you're trying to learn a language like you should be speaking to someone in that language and literally anything else you are doing is a waste of time right yeah 100
0: like, the principle of the principle of directness
1: Yeah. yeah, And I I think it's just like you got to be careful with all of the stuff that is trying to sell you that you can learn things like crazy quickly because nobody who's good at anything like learned it really quickly. And if you're trying to like find the 20 percent to get to 80 percent, well, anybody else can do that. So the 80 percent is really like 50 percent and it's not (laughs) really good enough for anything besides writing about in blog articles. Yeah. right, Like.
0: Yeah, you are. It looks
1: super sexy.
0: Yeah, you do. And it's. I think as well, have you listened to the Naval and Joe Rogan podcast yet? No, not yet. Oh, no, you got to get on it, man. It is like I don't usually sort of fanboy over podcast episodes, but that one was was a real like just mic drop after mic drop throughout the entire podcast. Really good. And in that, Naval talks about the fact that people's desire to look clever is greater than their desire to be clever. And Mm -hmm. I think that... Um, what you've alluded to there, which is someone wanting to know enough to have a simulacrum of intelligence. And I find it in myself, right? Like, you know, I want to be on this podcast or I'm, I'm going to speak to Robert Greene, New York Times bestseller, world renowned author. And I want to say stuff that makes me sound like I'm uh, not a different species to him. Like I wanna sound right. I wanna sound like, you know, he's got so Chris has got some interesting stuff to say. But it the lack of humbleness pulls you away from the actual thing that you're trying to do, which is just to understand stuff.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's very true.
0: Um so yes, what's what have we got next? So Peak up first and then Peek
1: is very good. Uh I'll say Endurance by Alfred Lansing is very good. All right. Uh, So that's the story of Shackleton and his crew who were trying to do the first trans Antarctic crossing and end up getting stuck in the ice right at the beginning of the trip and have to survive for, I think, like almost two years in Antarctica with no additional supplies or anything.
0: Two years. And
1: yeah, (laughs) and everybody like everybody outside of them just assumed they were dead because they never made it to their check-ins. Yeah. Um and every single member of the crew survived uh the whole like expedition and rescue mission. It's an absolutely insane book. Wow. Um, so, that's I'd highly recommend. That's probably like my favorite
0: biography I've read.
1: It's really really incredible.
0: That's awesome. Um have you read uh it's gonna it's so man's search for meaning is one book i guess that kind of comes to mind with regards to that like Hmm. turmoil and people going through things but uh the forgotten highlander or the last highlander i think it is by alistair no i haven't read that um so this man if you if you um it need a new autobiography style book to read i really highly recommend this one so this guy was a scottish uh, recruit in the highlanders uh, regiment world war 2 uh placed okay. placed overseas in japan and then when the japanese took uh decided that they were going to invade and and actually enter the war he was taken prisoner. He basically had dysentery for like four years straight, worked on bridge over the river Kwai, was left out in a hot tin box for two days with no food or water to basically cook in the sun. Um, Jeez. yeah, man, it's like, it's like man's search for meaning, but extreme. Then he gets, uh, taken to a different, uh, a uh, completely different camp has to be hospitalized number of times. They're not gi- not giving anyone any care. Gets put on one of these death ships, which is like basically a tin a tin can floating out at sea. Then then starts working. Gets transferred somewhere else. Gets starts working on a new bridge, and gets hit by the blast of the bomb from Nagasaki, and survives that as well. And then stays silent. Wow. Stay silent for forty years and it's kind of, I guess, like a memoir. It's also a call to arms to, a call to account the Japanese government for the atrocities, because there was, the Germans were held to account, but I think, I don't think the Japanese were so much, but as is evident by Alistair's book, there's some pretty big, sort of scary things that went on. Um, but yeah, that huh. is like, real it's an easy read as well. It's very narrative based, but like, if you ever want, to have contrast in your life, and just to think like I'm so, I'm so fortunate to just have a drink whenever I want a drink, and two legs that work, and like bowels that stay inside of my body, like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's um, Ooh. it's a good, it's a good one. Sounds so, good. Yeah. Uh, so, what's next?
1: Oh okay, yes, so that's two. Uh, let's see. Next, I'll say sovereign individual by james dale davidson and william Reesmog. uh that's a really 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 phenomenal books uh it's a really really phenomenal book uh, i think like it will change how you think about government and individual autonomy so it and money and power and a lot of things it's I think when it came out, it didn't get that much play, but it's having a moment now because it basically predicted a lot of stuff that's going on in crypto and the crypto economy. Uh, So it's really big in like the Bitcoin fanboy space. (laughs) Um, but it's like, it's a legitimately fantastic book and you, you will, uh, I think think about government and individual sovereignty differently coming out of it. Um, the it's a little like dry and hard to read at times so Mm. you may want to listen to the made you think episode first (laughs) just to see if it's like interesting before you try to force yourself
0: through it but it's very good got you again thinking about going back to the naval and joe rogan podcast you can tell i've listened to it twice in the last uh, the last few days it's all i've got in my mind but he's talking about um the future of social media and how the uh process for crypto the decentralization of crypto has paved uh, a way for future technologies to proof themselves against being taken down and he talks about he he predicts that at some point in the future you will have a decentralized social networks where it can't there's no one site or there's no one host and it can't be taken down and it will be a little bit more like the wild west and and stuff like that so i think people thinking forward to this sort of stuff to understand individual sovereignty. And obviously that's Jordan Peterson's whole shtick, right? And he's sold like millions of books off the back of that this year.
1: Yeah. You know, I hope that's right. But I think that humans tend towards collectivization and monopoly and centralization, not decentralization. Like I think that deep down people would prefer decentralized models for things uh, or Sorry, I think on the surface, people say they want decentralized models mm. for things, but the revealed preferences always trend toward centralized. Like, I, I'd be I'm kind of I'd be very surprised if we actually get the hyper decentralized world that a lot of the crypto community and it sounds like Naval are prophesizing mm. because like you will inherently have disparities in power and any like collection of power is going to result in like centralization of control within <laughs> that power. Yeah. Right? And like it's a communism the idea problem all that you over would again. Right? A, yeah. The idea that you would have like a perfectly communistic distribution of power and responsibility is just like kind of ridiculous. And I mean people talk about crypto as if it's this super decentralized currency but like most of the power is controlled by like a few companies in china right like if they wanted to turn off all of the mining rigs like they could do that and i'm sure that bitcoin survive but it's not like it's this perfectly distributed thing there's still a collection of power and there will always be a way to get power so i i'm i'm skeptical that we're going to have this amazing decentralized future i think we're just going to Change who holds power like we always have.
0: Yeah, I, I have to say, I think there's too much reptilian brain in a lot of humans for this uh, idealistic future to occur. Um, in, in my opinion, I would agree with you. I wonder whether people deep down perhaps like the idea of that uh, centralization because the way that they've grown up is with a trust in the institution, you need, know, you grow up and you have trust in school. You have trust in your teacher. You have trust in the education system that moves you on. You have trust in law enforcement. You have trust in government. And really, no matter how much, no matter how much of an anarchist people, or someone may claim to be, I think deep down we all would much prefer government to work the way that government's supposed to work and education to work the way that education's supposed to work. Um, I don't know whether that's because people don't have the, ability to see outside of that box or whether big picture sort of blue sky thinking is just just pretty tough or something else i don't know
1: well i think it's like you know plato's republic right the the ideal government is a philosopher king I mean democracies are messy and extremely slow and most people really shouldn't be making political decisions for other people right <laughs> yeah. um But it's like the best worst system Uh, and a, you know, a purely a super benevolent, hyper rational dictator would be a far superior form of government than like what we have in the States. But since we can't guarantee that anybody you put in that position is going to be that like hyper rational, reasonable Mm -hmm. person, you need all of these other like checks and things. And so I feel like that's sort of what happens with the whole centralization decentralization argument is you'll get these rapid swings in either direction where the Internet started out super decentralized and kind of a free for all wild west and then power started, you know, coming into certain areas, right? Like Google, Facebook, whatnot. Uh, And now we're seeing the extremes of that and saying, like, all right, this is too much. And so it's going (laughs) to swing back in the other direction maybe, and like maybe we will get this you know, internet 3.0 crypto net, whatever yeah. that people are asking for. But that too, I think will be temporary and something about that, you know, cause like, here's the thing with total decentralization is like stuff needs a plan, right? Like you, if you imagine like laying out a city or designing the streets by committee and just like completely ad hoc with no planning or right? like it'd be a mess. You want a, <laughs> powerful body for certain things yeah um so it's i think that you know we'll maybe we'll swing towards decentralization and then that will be dissatisfying in its ways and we'll swing back towards you know concentrated power again like we're just always going to be in those kinds of cycles
0: yeah i think so the grass always tends to be greener as well and people presume that the future is going to make some sort of improvement if they just make a drastic change which i don't know it doesn't seem to be the case you touched on something there about the benevolent single dictator thing and I always think about how crazy it is that I know that you you're right, there's checks below Donald Trump or the the Prime Minister or whoever it might be, the head of any particular state. There are checks and there's people around they're culpable to and processes they need to follow. But at the end of the day, the person that presses the button that nukes another country is just a guy. And like that person is completely at the mercy of all of their biases and all of their Uh, prejudices and everything that they've got and the fact that we've got seven billion people on the planet at the mercy of that like i know that it is the you know it would appear to be the system that is the best at the moment but looking at it uh totally objectively it it makes me uh, laugh and also be terrified in the same sentence
1: yeah you know i would have felt more that way three years ago Mm. but i actually think that Trump has been really good for the like American sense of democracy, because if anybody like sits down and tries to make a list of all the ways their life is worse with Trump being president, it's going to be a very short list, right? Like I really can't come up with a few things that are the direct responsibility of like Trump policies that have affected me on an individual level. And like the country is still going pretty well, right? Like I I would agree that international policy and st- or like international relations and things like that have taken a hit, but I think everybody was like so terrified of what would happen with this, you know, seemingly insane person being <laughs> in power. And the answer is like not much, right? Like the the tariff stuff now kind of sucks because I mean like we sell tea, right? And our tea prices went up twenty five percent importing to China, but like. these are all kind of like edge casey things, right? It's not like we got into some crazy nuclear war with North Korea. It's not like, you know, there are Nazis marching in the street like I think some people legitimately thought might happen, right? Mm. Like the president has actually remarkably little influence on our lives, and that should be kind of refreshing for how much we allow ourselves to get wrapped up in the insanity of some of that political stuff.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you are right. Do you think that people are very quick to to personify these roles obviously their main actual problem was with Donald Trump's personality i think there was a uh nbc or maybe one of the more maybe like a a vice news article or something a video that they did online where they went around before the election and they were showing particular uh campaign objectives or particular policies that was it to voters from the opposite side and saying this is what this is a, a Hillary policy, blah blah blah, and they're going, yeah, yeah, brilliant, classic Hillary, classic, love it, love it. And then at the end, they go, yep. actually, all of those are Donald Trump, and you could see the cognitive dissonance occur <laughs> in people <laughs> when they're like, oh, I, I, I like the policy, but the with the 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 NPC programming just like triggers. So is that because yeah. we've got you know like The Bachelor and and. Uh, like pop idol equivalents and stuff like that where everything's personified and it's all about the person's narrative and story and that often can actually detract away from the objective measures
1: Uh, yeah i mean i think that's part of it i think too like humans are inherently tribal and we need some tribe to feel a part of and most and also importantly i think we need some tribe to be an enemy of right yeah and if you and i actually think that it's a useful exercise to think about your like what tribes you choose to identify with and then which tribes you choose to like fight against you know intellectually or emotionally or like what will you allow yourself to be triggered by Mm -hmm. is kind of a worthwhile exercise because if you don't pick what you're what's going to be like your enemy then your friends or your community or like whatever news you let through your filter is going to pick it for you um and, like, politics is just the easiest one, right? It's super easy to hang out with all of your liberal or conservative friends and, like, shit on the other team yeah. in the same way that, you know, you'll just shit on the other, like, sports team and you're, like nobody almost nobody arguing about politics has any impact in the political (laughs) sphere at all right like everybody getting uptie about the news like it doesn't affect your life like it's not going to change how you behave day to day like you're not going to go do anything about it like this thing that you're getting so pissed about it's not going to like you're you're, like you're not going to do anything you're not going to run for office you're not going to go like petition at the local courthouse or whatever to get something changed you're just going to like bitch about it on facebook so (laughs) it's like it's it's just a fun bonding thing more than anything, right? And it's a way to show that you're a member of the group because everyone's always trying to feel out what tribes all the other people around them are in. And a really easy way to show what tribe you're in is like how you feel about political stuff,
0: Yeah, right? Yeah, because it, down, down, think- downstream from that, it suggests that there's more implications people can draw about your personality. I was speaking to Caleb yeah. Caleb Jones the other day, who's a massive non-monogamy advocate. And he said, you know, non non monogamy, uh leans left, lots of libertarian friends, but doesn't smoke weed, doesn't drink. And for his other friends, that's like what you don't smoke like cut they can't believe the fact that he doesn't smoke weed because it doesn't fit the profile. Yeah. Which is hilarious. People aren't
1: comfortable with that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. again,
0: I was talking to Robert Green. He was saying about how not uh, not allowing people to put you in a box and not allowing people to categorize you uh, sort of one-dimensionally is one of the best things that you can do, not only to hedge your personality, your interests in life, but also just to come across as a bit more of an enigma and a bit more of a multi-layered, multifaceted, interesting individual. I don't think anyone wants to look back in their life and feel like it was a a trope or like a cliche. uh, My life was really good. I was a caricature of myself.
1: Yeah. Well, and if you can tell anybody one or two of your political beliefs and they can accurately infer all of the other ones, then (laughs) you probably haven't thought about what you believe in very much, right? You've just sort of accepted like the package set of ideas that come with one group and you're running with them, yeah. right? And I think, like, you know, I, there's all of these... There's a lot of really hot-button issues that I think most people don't think about very hard. Like, guns and abortion are the two big ones, mm-hmm. where if you actually sit down and think about them, like, they're really, really tough, uh, like, things to design policy around, because they both require drawing sort of an arbitrary line in the sand that's yeah. not based in you know, really anything beyond your emotions or your, like, philosophical, religious background. And I think people like to think that they're super cut-and-dry, easy things, but the only way you would think that is if, again, you hadn't thought about them very hard (laughs) and you were just, like, going off of what your group is supposed to believe.
0: Yeah, I think um, people often talk past each other with these issues as well, right? Like, on the topic of gun control, one group is talking about school shootings and uh, people who are on SSRIs and the other side is talking about an armed militia against a government, a tyrannical government. Or on the topic of abortion, one side is talking about protecting a woman's rights if she's been raped and the other side is talking about late-term, you know, 20 weeks in, uh, abortion's with no no reason other than a personal choice. So the the actual discussions aren't the questions that each side opposing to each other aren't even the same one. They're talking from. I, I think
1: they're actually. I think they're actually harder than that. I think that you can be a lot more generous to the other sides in both of those arguments, right? And I think that the most generous way to frame the gun control debate is like. Oh why or how can you say that a poor single mother living in the slums of Chicago is not allowed to defend herself, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like that, to me, seems insane if you're surrounded by people with guns and you want to tell these law-abiding citizens who are living in terrible areas that they can't have an equivalent weapon with which to defend themselves, Mm -hmm. right? That seems crazy. Um, And then in the abortion case, it's not even, I think, about the... Late term choice. Well, it's it's partly that one side is saying this is a choice debate And so sure. they're saying that anybody against abortion is against women having rights, which mm-hmm. is insane And then the other side is saying this is a life discussion and anybody who's pro-abortion is pro-murder Right, and that's also kind of like an insane <laughs> framing. And so if both <laughs> sides Continue to like talk past each other it doesn't get anywhere. But until somebody sits down and they say like, you know either at this date or at this line a fetus becomes a human and then it's no longer okay to abort that's the only way you can be okay with like abortion at some level and I, like this is something that i think about a lot like i don't know where the rules on it should be mm. like i'm very i'm very pro choice but i don't have like a good i think backing up for that position it just feels like emotionally right that the the right to choose is more important than the philosophical discussion about when life begins but i also recognize that like i don't have a super solid backing
0: for that Right, i, I agree yeah and i uh, having watched yeah, it's, it's tough uh, having, having watched ben shapiro's uh anti-abortion uh debate videos on youtube i found myself putting myself on the other side of the fence trying to put my point across to ben and finding that i was getting absolutely annihilated like i i just I yeah. didn't have an awful lot of comeback other than sort of her body, her choice, I guess. And yeah, this arbitrary line in the sand of when life begins, in quotation marks.
1: And unfortunately, you can't even really talk about this. There's no room for new ones at all, groups. is there? Yeah, no, because the minute you say that there could be a reasonable argument for the other side, you're like labeled as you know, a terrible person, it doesn't really matter which side you're doing that to, right? Like if you've got <laughs> a group of super liberal people and you say like, well, actually I can see why somebody would think that life begins at conception without religion. Like the immediate reaction is that like, oh, you don't think women should have rights. Right. And like, that's such an insane mischaracterization of what someone's trying to say that it closes the door to any discussion. Yeah. And, you know, on the same side, if you like tell a super conservative group, they're like, oh, well, I actually think that, you know, they're, is some reasonable allowance for, you know, abortion in, in certain cases, like you're, the same thing's going to happen, right? Mm-hmm. Like then you're obviously a murderer who wants to like kill babies. And that's <laughs> not fair either. <laughs> like yeah. it, We've just sort of lost the ability, I think, to talk about these things uh, or to risk talking about them in polite discussion. It's like just not worth it anymore. So we talk about, game of thrones
0: (laughs) yeah Yeah, (laughs) we do we and then people just riff on game of thrones and they say that the most recent season of that was shit um so final two books nat we'll do quick fire
1: quick fire uh final two books uh i would say i'm trying to find a good one here um
0: with 240 to choose from i imagine that's probably not actually that easy of a choice yeah yeah i feel like having to pick one of you one of your favorite children (laughs) I've got to pick my favorite kid here.
1: Good. Well, if uh, So I've got all of my notes ordered by rating up on my site. So if you go to like, nataliason.com slash notes, you can see them all. But I'll throw out... Godel Escher-Bach is amazing. What was that, sorry? It's a Godel Escher-Bach okay. by Douglas Hofstadter. He was one of like the early pi- pioneers in terms of thought in the AI space. And it's... It's one of the most intellectually challenging books I think I've ever read. Uh, The writing writing is very easy, right? It's not difficultly written, but it requires like grasping and trying to work with ideas from like math, physics, logic, biology, and also these like tricky philosophical ideas about what is a brain, what is a mind, like is there an eye, all of that. Uh, And it's written in this extremely beautiful style that merges uh, artwork by M.C. Escher, uh, narrative little fables in the style of like Lewis Carroll, and then more uh, more like descriptive nonfiction writing
0: that brings it all together. It's a
1: very cool book. There's really no other book quite like it.
0: That's awesome. That sounds really, really cool. Would you recommend is Kindle sufficient for that or does it need to be the physical copy?
1: Like there is a Kindle version Uh, and if there is, I wouldn't recommend it. I would definitely read the physical version so that you get all of the art laid out properly. So because like there's uh, so a lot of the ideas in it come back to this idea of like strange loops and uh, recursive relationships between ideas or functions in a computer, things like that. And so some of the narratives are themselves recursive and nested in these odd ways that require you to see the physical layout in the book to totally get what's going on. I think on a Kindle would be really hard.
0: Yeah, I got you.
1: And then last one I'll throw out would be denial of death by Ernest Becker. That's another super interesting one. It's basically just about what it sounds like that almost everything we do is about or is in some way related to our, uncomfortableness with death and trying to create you know these pyramids these sculptures that will outlast us at our in our in our feeble attempts at immortality
0: so uh, i was speaking to carl Sederstrom. do you know carl he uh, was the guy Duts. who guy who did uh he optimized one area of his life every month for a year he basically immersed himself in like the life hacking world um, and he optimized one one month was sex, one month was money, one month was productivity, one month was like relationships or fitness or whatever it might be. And um, his sequel book, which was about happiness, and he said he was pretty much certain the overarching principle between both books was that the reason people are trying to optimize their life so hard and the reason that people are searching for happiness is... In an effort to stave off their thoughts about death, and it sounds—it's such a morbid, like, bottom line to put to a book. But I do think that yeah. I do think that our fear of the end drives so much of what people do. I mean, obviously, like that maximizes evolutionary fitness, right? Like, being afraid of death is is generally over the uh, the course of our evolution a pretty good thing to have. Um, right. <laughs> but now, in a, a world of abundance, it leads to some pretty. Uh, some odd um, some odd thought loops occurring yeah seriously For sure. but that's
1: a good one for ruminating on that thought so great awesome. as well
0: Nat, uh, I, I can't thank you enough, man. It's been awesome. If if you will, uh, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Give us the time in the future, maybe we can get you back on, do another top five or or something like that. As always, the links to everything that we've spoken about today will be in the show notes below. I'll also make sure that I add every book that I can find from that Nat's gone through today, and I'll put it on our Amazon shop front. Just follow the link, and you can support the podcast at no extra cost to yourself through that. Also, links to Made You Think podcast growth machine and nat's socials will be down below as well so make sure that you go and check him out i highly recommend made you think it's a fantastic podcast nat today's been sick man thank you very much
1: yeah thanks chris we'll talk more soon